Screw World War One. Screw World War One in general. Am time. I right? Would not recommend. <laughs> Zero out of ten. One of my all-time uh, bottom five worst wars. Oh, interesting. What's yeah. your What's your top war? Oh, probably Peloponnesian. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is November 24th, 2020. Happy early Thanksgiving. I guess just everyone in the US, if you're in Canada, you're over it by now. I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. And joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. Thanks uh, for for uh, introducing me and uh, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> You're you're welcome. What a, <laughs> what what are my other options there? Just not introducing you? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess on today's show the, that is not an option. <laughs> yeah, very good point. Uh, Jeff is on vacation this week, so it's just uh, the the Neil and Sarah show. Um, I think it's the Sarah and Neil show. Well, well, sure. Um, I'll I'll accept that. Um, I needed we needed to talk right away about <laughs> so last week. Like almost immediately after we announced that the Milwaukee Bucks had traded with the Sacramento Kings for Bogdan Bogdanovich. And we liked that trade, by the way. We loved that trade. I was all about that trade. Um, it is totally fell through. Not a thing at all. And the Bucks are under investigation for tampering. So it's like not only do you not get this player that might help you keep your superstar, we also might find you for cheating. For like the, they're the the whole point of tampering is like to not allow the big teams to screw with the little teams. And now the Bucks have found themselves in the middle of that. If I were a conspiracy theorist uh, and a Bucks fan, I'd be kind of upset right now. I am a conspiracy theorist. And I mean, I'm a quasi Bucks fan. And Yeah, you're close to a Bucks fan. I am close to a Bucks fan. That's very true. Um, in other NBA news, Gordon Hayward got a metric crap ton of money. That is a... Uh, Oof. An official metric. Four so, years, $128 million to sign with Charlotte. That's bad. Damn. I mean, who? Uh, uh, I think it was Chris Herring, our colleague, um, said that Michael Jordan was the Sam Bowie of, yeah. <laughs> of team executives, and this continues to prove it. I know. I went into this free agency period thinking, you know, there's not really any big names if Anthony Davis resigns with the Lakers, it's sort of going to be a boring free agency. And then I forgot that like no free agency is boring because there will always be just some wackadoodle tr- deals that you will not be expecting at all. Um, moving on from NBA to NFL, we have to talk about <laughs> our survivor pool. I don't want to because I just, this is what happens, Neil, when I... <laughs> Bet on the Vikings. (laughs) This is what happens. I knew this was going to happen, too. Like, the Vikings should have beaten. You said it. You said it would happen. The Vikings should have beaten the Cowboys. Delvin Cook should have gotten 200 yards. And instead, somehow, even though Andy Dalton had, like, 200 yards passing, um, the Vikings managed to not win that game. So I lost my matchup in the survivor pool. Neil, you won with your Chargers, and Jeff won with the Steelers. So the logjam at the top of our standings is is now cleared. Not the way I wanted to clear that. Neil, you have eight points. I have seven. Jeff has six. Um, we're getting to the difficult part of the pool because the options are like all the good teams are taken. 
Yeah, yeah. So now we have to be extra, extra judicious with our picks. Um, so the order this week is Neil, Sarah, Jeff. So what is your pick this week, Neil? Yeah, so uh, I, it's a little bit of a tough week. I was sort of gaming out all the different um, picks that I could make. I had my eye on your Vikings, Sarah. I was thinking about them. They're at home against Carolina with PJ Walker, maybe starting like maybe Bridgewater will be in there. Um, But I think even though they're on the road uh, and it is the Browns, I'm going to take Cleveland against Jacksonville. Um, I don't know about Jake Luton uh, versus... um, versus Gardner Minshew. I don't think there's a, any great options in that if Minshew is even healthy. Um, so I'm going to stay luten free <laughs> in my diet this week. Nice. And uh, I'll pick uh, Cleveland. Um, well, that leaves me, of course, with uh, the Miami Dolphins who are facing the New York Jets. We'll see if this, uh, this can hold on the Jets winless streak. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, this one's more about the Jets than the, than the Dolphins. Yeah, I for sure. I this yeah, um, Tua didn't look fabulous over the weekend, um, but I feel like I just have to keep. They're sticking with yeah. them. Um, Fitz Magic though, waiting in the wings in case anything goes wrong. But break glass in case of beard emergency. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I don't know if if the Jets go this whole season without um winning a game and we use them in our survivor pool every week they're the real mvp of this of this pool right oh completely um also i have in from uh i have a pick in from jeff he is going to take the new york giants over the burrowless cincinnati bengals which is uh yeah Uh, it's it's bold see how that strategy works out for him that's not a bad pick i don't think that's a terrible pick yeah you know it really uh, you know, the Bengals have been looking better, but I assume that that has a lot to do with Burrow. Um, They're throwing the ball a lot. Well, they were throwing the ball a lot. It certainly, I don't know how this is going to yeah, work. It certainly did not have anything to do with their offensive line, which um, it repeatedly let him get hit. And then, and of course, the last hit was the worst one. On today's show, we'll talk about the opening of the college basketball season. It is set to begin Wednesday, November 24th. The games have already been postponed or canceled left and right, and programs like Tennessee and Duke are in a holding pattern because of positive COVID-19 tests. So we'll talk about college basketball's approach to the season and what we expect the sport will need to contend with in terms of the pandemic. Then we'll try to figure out what to expect from the basketball that will be played, looking into the rankings for both men's and women's teams. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The college basketball season begins tomorrow, mostly. As with every single sport this year, the NCAA and individual programs have had to grapple with the coronavirus pandemic and make some tough choices. The Ivy League canceled basketball along with all other winter sports. The Florida A&M women's team withdrew from the season as well, citing health concerns. The Florida and Baylor men's teams, among others, won't be playing this weekend because of COVID-19 outbreaks. And the vaunted UConn women's team has suspended all basketball activities for 14 days after a positive test. Despite all of that, the college basketball season is forging ahead with non-conference games, travel, the works. On SportsCenter, ESPN's Jay Billis says that's because it had to and that there's reason to be optimistic. I think the one thing that gives me optimism that we can get the season in 
is that we're about a week away from all of these schools sending their students home for Thanksgiving, and they're not going to bring them back. That's been in the plan for a long time. Mm. So the, the, the players, the teams, will essentially be isolated in their own on-campus bubble. And that may be enough cover to keep the players safe enough where there's not spread that you would expect from students being on campus. Because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it everywhere. Right. But, but, but we're definitely going to see it on campus. And you're going to see more teams that are going to have positives and it's going to be shutting programs down. You just saw it at Syracuse and the like. Uh, that's going to continue, and we have to be able, we have to expect those disruptions and be able to roll with it because we cannot, like the NCAA and all the member institutions, they they cannot cancel this season. There is just too much money at stake, too much of a big business. It, it, it's got to go forward, and that's not a bad thing. We obviously can't know what's in store for us over the winter. Other than that, it seems like the country is trending in a pretty bleak direction. For more about what's happening with the pandemic, I really encourage everyone to listen to 538's Podcast 19. It's our a great podcast about COVID put on by our colleagues. But Neil, what do you think about this idea of sort of accidental on-campus bubbles in December, giving the schedule some stability because players won't be exposed to the general student population? Well, I mean, every little bit helps, right? Yeah. When we're talking about something like this, and we know that you know, social gatherings and just a lot of like in-person contact has really intensified the spread, especially like indoor, you know, gatherings and things like that. Uh, And that colleges have certainly been worse in terms of being hotspots than regular schooling situations like, you know, elementary and, and high schools, which I think speaks to the maybe enhanced like social away from the classroom interactions that that kids are going to have. Uh, and so maybe if that is less of an option, maybe Jay Billis is right that we'll see the players be less exposed. But, you know, it's not a I don't know. It's it's like everything else. It's not a comprehensive solution by any stretch of the imagination. It's not really even like a concerted intentional solution. It's just sort of like, a, oh, hey, maybe this will make things slightly less bad by just happenstance. But I feel like that's sort of where we're at, especially, you know, in, as a country, but also in terms of sports, like, you know, we're seeing this in college football where it, it really is just this mentality of kind of pressing on no matter what and finishing and kind of rolling with whatever punches come come in. So I think that we'll be in store for more of that, more cancellations, more, you know, yeah. postponements and and all of that. And so maybe it's it's not really a bubble. Like having the the kids be on the campus, you know, or the other students not be on the campus with the players is not a bubble in the same uh, sense that the NBA set up a bubble at Walt Disney World and had comprehensive testing and plans and layers of um, people who had access. So I don't even think it's fair to call it a bubble. It's actually not anything. It's not even close to a bubble just because students aren't like living in dorms on campus does not mean they're not like there (laughs) like a lot of a lot of kids you know live in their college town it's not like they necessarily have a place to go a lot of I mean you know think about when you were out of you know out of a dorm and living off campus did you just run home to where your parents are not necessarily I mean I there are still going to be contacts with other people maybe slightly less because you're not going to a classroom Um, although I'm not sure how many of these students were in you know, classroom situations anyway. 
Um, and we've still seen many, many tests. Also seen a lot of tests, positive tests from coaches who like, you know, their lives are not going to change. It's not like they're in the classroom or not. It, you know, they're not gym teachers who also teach history. You know, this isn't like that. So you mean Coach K is not, uh, he's not teaching some math yeah, class? At Duke? I guess, I sh- you know, um, who was it? Mike Leach who taught a, uh, yeah. a like war class. Um, so yeah, I guess I shouldn't say that overall, but it, I, it just, people are still going to interact. Um, and teams are still playing fairly robust non-conference schedules. I mean, reduced, but they're still playing teams outside of their conference, um, as opposed to in college football, where those non-conference games were just wiped out altogether, reduced to just one to limit the travel. But I don't know. I mean, is the value of non-conference games different for basketball than it is for college football? Are there other mitigating factors there between the two sports? I mean, I think it's pretty similar in terms of um, the model of having a lesser team get paid to come and visit the the favored team and uh, that ecosystem of, you know, filling out uh, lower tier teams budgets by basically the top teams paying for wins. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I am not totally sure about the rationale behind having the non-conference unless they looked at college football and they were like, look, yeah, you know, it's not like the prohibition on conference games or non-conference games is making that much of a difference for, uh, you know, and, and, and to a certain logical extent you look at it and you're like, well, yeah, I mean, this, a lot of these conferences are so spread out to like so many different parts of the country. I'm thinking about the big 10 and it's uh, absurd spread over like multiple regions that, you know, I don't think that really uh, you're, you're cutting yourself off from being in communities where there is rampant spread. And especially now, cause like, the whole country it has extremely high levels of COVID, um, which is like, it's such a nihilistic uh, planning yeah. perspective for college basketball, where you're just basically, it's like throwing up your hands, like, well, what difference does it make? You know, that, <laughs> let's, let's just play some non-conference games. Cause those do, I think that is an important part of the economic ecosystem of college sports, uh, especially at the, the big time division one level. I also feel like, you know, traveling with a football team, you know, these teams are huge, is a much greater undertaking than traveling with a basketball team, which is still more than just like five people, you know, but but it's but it's just not nearly as intense. Well, things aren't starting in this season quite the way we thought they would even just a few weeks ago. One one messy case in point The Battle for Atlantis, which was normally held in the Bahamas, was canceled in September, but the men's and women's teams scheduled for the two tournaments involved in that were all invited to a new tournament, the Bad Boy Mowers Crossover Classic. Great name. (laughs) I know. That is one of our favorite um, bowl sponsor names, too. That's right. Yeah. Um, But so this tournament is scheduled for Sioux Falls, South Dakota, my hometown. Case counts there have risen dramatically, and of course, teams are dealing with their own outbreaks, so many of the original participants in that tournament have dropped out. Instead of canceling the tournament, organizers have found new teams to step in. On Monday, less than two days before the tournament starts, the Wichita State men dropped out because of multiple positive COVID-19 tests that were discovered upon the team's arrival in South Dakota. 
Enter VCU, which was supposed to play its first two games of the season at a Tennessee tourney that has been canceled. The Rams are hopping on a plane today to get to Sioux Falls and take Wichita State's place in the tournament tomorrow. I know we, I think we knew college basketball would be hard, but this, this kind of maneuvering seems absurd. Neil, can we, can we do this kind of thing all season? Or or are these small tournaments actually kind of making things worse? I mean, they probably are, uh, but they're also, I assume money makers or, you know, that uh, a lot of them are nationally televised. They're part of that like ESPN, you know, rollout to the season and so on and so forth. And so I, I think there's a financial motivation. I mean, there's financial motivation behind all of this. It's purely financial motivation, in fact. Um, uh, and I do think that the the tournament structure, though, is making things worse in the sense that it's not like one-off games that you can kind of reschedule or cancel and it doesn't have these, uh, you know, too many ripple effects over uh, the the rest of, you know, your conference or whoever else you're playing with. Whereas like if it's a tournament structure and the team that just won, uh, you know, in the second round uh, has to drop out because of COVID cases, what do you do? Like, what what do you do? Do you declare the team that would have played them a, a winner by forfeit? Um, so I do think that maybe once they get into more of like a normal schedule, they can kind of work around in a little bit like what we've seen with other sports where like baseball did this a lot, you know, in terms of rescheduling and postponing and shuffling the schedule around. And the NFL has had to do it a little bit too. And college football has just been like, you know, totally okay with teams playing however many games they can get in and whoever opponents that they can face that, uh, you know, are sufficiently healthy enough to play. Like it's, it's just, you know, uh, a very ragtag season compared with the normal stability that we think of. And I definitely expect college basketball to look that way too. But again, like Jay Billa said in our take, um, they're doing this because they cannot survive economically canceling another March Madness um, and all the fallout from that. I mean, they're barely surviving canceling one. And so it's sort of the rock in the hard place, like a lot of these um, organizations are in. It's a microcosm of, you know, what we're dealing with throughout society. I mean, there are things you can still do during a pandemic that don't, that don't put yourself into, <laughs> into economic peril. Then there are other things you can't. Um, and, you know, jobs that still need to be done and businesses that still need to be open and, and, you know, sports are non-essential and yet they will die if they don't aren't played in some way. And, and the, the revenue doesn't come in. The NCAA did announce that teams need a minimum of only 13 games to be eligible for the tournaments, which sounds like very few games. That's kind of crazy, right? That's a football schedule. Yeah. But, you know, as we've seen so far with all of the cancellations already, you know, 13 might actually be kind of tricky if if a team has to shut down for 14 days like UConn is having to do to start the season. If that happens in the middle of the season, you know, getting all those games in might be tough. Um, but you kind of understand why VCU would jump to would like go to Sioux Falls, South Dakota in November to play in a tournament at the last second to get those games in because you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's, it, it's been interesting that, 
you know, since, since sports started up again in the summer, there've been all these points that, that we thought, okay, well that is probably going to be it for (laughs) baseball or whatever, but the sports just, they kept going, um, and adapted and figured out how to, how to keep going. But I wonder too, if, you know, have leagues learned how to, you know, be more responsible and, and figure it out in some ways, or just keep going no matter what and not where, I mean, like we looked at the bubbles in for NBA and WNBA and, and NHL, and those were very firm bubbles and very well-policed and baseball did not do that. And college football and the NFL obviously can't do that and have not even tried to do that. Have they, I mean, have they found a way to make this work even with the tests happening where we're just going to keep going and not care as much about it, I guess. I mean, I think that that is sort of the approach that we've ultimately settled on as a country. (laughs) You know, I think it's not just sports where it's like we've decided that, you know, and I'm not like scolding anyone. It just is what it is um, that we've decided we're going to try to do some facsimile of regular life as best we can. And people kind of have to assess risk for themselves. I think the big issue here, like it is with college football, is that these aren't professional players. These are players that, you know, they have some stake in completing the season and playing, especially in high profile tournaments and especially the NCAA tournament to be noticed by scouts and advance their career in the NBA or the WNBA. But like, really, the they're not getting as much out of this as the schools and the NCAA are getting out of it by pressing onward and playing no matter what. So I think it's a little bit different from even the professional leagues where at least the players are getting paid and there's a common goal that you can kind of unite around and maybe to, um, uh, to, to a detriment at a certain extent, like with Justin Turner, I think a lot of what we saw with Justin Turner was like the mentality of we're, we're trying to, win the championship. So I have to be disciplined and uh, care about COVID to the extent that it doesn't ruin our season. uh, That mentality maybe works a little bit more when you're a professional and you're being paid and you're part of this kind of culture of of professionalism. Uh, Whereas with with college students, I don't know what they're necessarily getting uh, out of it, except like maybe a little bit more exposure. But nowadays you can get that you know, outside of the college sports system. And we saw that in the NBA draft last week where a lot of guys bypassed the system or, you know, otherwise were not fully participating in it and they still got drafted. If you can't create an airtight bubble, which was an unqualified success for pro basketball and uh, the NHL, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, that's the top solution uh, if you can make it work. But if you can't, I feel like we've settled on to this mentality of like, well, why even try? We're going to do some cursory things when when things reach kind of a boiling point or pressure point of like, we just literally can't assemble a team of healthy players to play. Then we'll cancel things. We'll shuffle things around. Maybe we'll threaten some fines here and there. We've seen the NFL do that a little bit also, but it's not really kind of like a robust plan. I, I think college uh, is going to be you know, the worst offenders when it comes to that. Yeah. Look, the pandemic is hard on everyone. I think it's hard on young people who were told early in, early on that they are not at risk. And so their, their safety concerns have been framed more as 
who around them they can hurt. And that is a much harder concept in the first place. And then when you combine that with like being young, being in college, wanting to live your life and meet people and and do normal things, it's a little bit easier, I think, for for an old like me to like say, all right, I'm going to, you know, hunker down and just live my life in this small apartment and, and do that for a while. I think that's a lot harder when you're young. I mean, this just sucks. All of it sucks. And there's no... <laughs> We know this. I, I mean, I'm glad to see college basketball back, but again, it's all of these things in that we've been dealing with this whole year that are just hard to to reconcile. The sports world has been sort of like a mirror for society and our response to this throughout the entire process, throughout the whole pandemic, and in some, it's it's kind of been an indicator of where things are headed uh, also and how almost in a weird way, how seriously we're taking the virus or just, you know, what our mentality and approach is um, to to our normal people's everyday behavior, not even just like a government response or anything like that, but just people's attitudes toward it in general. So I, I kind of see this as more the same. And I don't know if, you know, I worry about this, like playing sports, does this give us a false sense of normalcy that, you know, if we see people playing basketball on TV, we're sort of more inclined to be like, oh, it's things aren't that bad. We can go out. Whereas it's like when sports were totally stopped, it, it, it kind of caused us to pause and think like, oh, this is like some serious shit happening. You know, maybe we should like yeah. uh, give it the, the seriousness that it deserves. But at the same time, obviously, we love sports. We're glad that they're back. We're in the industry. We have a vested interest in, you know, having them be on so that we can talk about them and write about them and cover them. So it's it's just like everything else. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I mean, for me personally, having games on helps break up the monotony of not being able to go out and do things. But that's how I'm approaching it. And I'm not sure everyone else is approaching it in the same way. But I also don't know, you know, there's a lot of things that we can be doing for the public good but we don't even know what what will necessarily move people to act in responsible ways and to stop a virus and and maybe nothing. I mean, maybe the only thing that will change things now is the vaccine. I don't know. Going into this winter, I you know, I'm really glad to have basketball. I really hope it doesn't make things worse. All right. I think we can leave this here for now. There's obviously going to be a lot more to talk about with college basketball as the season gets going and how they deal with the pandemic. We will be back in a moment to talk more about the actual basketball that will be played. No matter how the season will actually look, we know what the college basketball rankings look like right now. On the men's side, the AP poll has Gonzaga at number one, followed by Baylor, Villanova, Virginia, and Iowa rounding out the top five. On the women's side, the AP has South Carolina in the top spot, followed by Stanford, Connecticut, Baylor, and Louisville. So assuming everything goes forward, we wanted to talk a little bit about the top teams and the road they might have ahead of them to the NCAA tournament, whether the madness takes place in March or April, maybe even May, who knows. Baylor has the distinction of having both its men's and women's team in the top five, but on Eye on College Basketball podcast, Matt Norlander didn't feel too strongly about the men's team's chances at even a conference title. Strongly is putting it too strongly. I do believe they've got a really good chance to do it, but the Big 12 is too competitive for me to, to have 
a lot of confidence in that. I have more confidence about the team we'll talk about on Friday. Uh, Gonzaga, there's no real suspense here. Everyone knows it's Gonzaga that's going to be number one. I have more confidence Villanova winning in the Big East. I have more confidence in our number four team, Virginia, winning the ACC. My brain is mush. Who was the fifth team? Who did we talk about to start the week? Iowa, right? Yeah, the Hawkeyes. And I got more. I got more confidence in Baylor winning the Big Twelve than I do Iowa uh, winning winning the Big Ten there. But um, yeah, obviously a very intriguing team, and this is just uh, to state the obvious. Baylor historically is a terrible program. In fact, my entire list of the top 68 programs in the NCAA tournament era, so from 1939 until this year, is out. And I researched more than 100 programs on that list. Baylor did not even come close. It's interesting to be talking about the strength of Baylor's program right after an NBA draft where the big prestige schools we usually think about didn't even have any lottery picks. Neil, when we're assessing the strength of a team like Baylor, do we need to care anymore about its tradition? No, I don't think so. Um, maybe that was true back when you know players stayed longer at teams, and there you could kind of build up this this long pipeline. And we should say a lot of Baylor's top players came back: Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, all these guys, uh, and they were good last year. But at the same time, it's it's not a traditional powerhouse by any means and i don't think we care about that like if you look at that the rankings that you were talking about you know yeah you've got baylor at number two you've got iowa in the top five (laughs) and yes you also have villanova and virginia they i think won the last two championships back when we had those so um you know remember far back in the past when villanova was winning um the national championship uh, and, and you've got Kansas at number six. So it's like, I don't know, there's, there's a mix, but Duke is ninth in the preseason. Kentucky is 10th, uh, Michigan state 13th, North Carolina down at 16th. So it's not even like the, um, lottery, uh, absence for those programs in the NBA draft is not because they just were loaded with players that decided to come back and mount a run at the championship as much as it's just you know, kind of a, a maybe a down period for the top programs, uh, at least as as we know them right now. And the preseason poll, Ugh. as you hate to have uh, be reminded about, is actually kind of predictive in college basketball compared with what we might expect. There there have been a number of studies that show that it retains a lot of predictive value when you go into March Madness. Now we should say that. I don't know whether that will hold as much in a season like this, where we will have uh, a lot less of an idea of just who's even good and things seem kind of scrambled and we don't even have a um, incidentally tournament to call back on and think fondly about from last spring. So I don't know. Uh, I, I think predicting the season in general might be kind of difficult. And we see Ken Palm already has his preseason rankings out, and they look very similar to the um, the AP poll. Baylor is number one, Gonzaga number two, then then Duke. Duke's top three in his preseason rankings. I, I do think it's sort of funny. Like it's a down year for the Blue Bloods, who are all still ranked in the top, like what sixteen. So it's like well, it's all re- everything's relevant. Yeah, they're not like oh, they're not the the top five teams in the country. They're still the top in the top 20. Um, what a terrible down year for them. Uh, <laughs> I just think it's so funny the different expectations we have for different programs, which like also leads me to Gonzaga is a 
fascinating program to me. Their tradition now is very, that they have a very good program and yet they haven't won it all. Is that, should that be part of our evaluation of them? Like classically, they, they play this really difficult slate of games early. They schedule these great non-conference teams. They're in a not great conference. So as we get closer to the tournament, their competition isn't very good. Is that a part of, you know, what their ceiling is? Do you think? I don't know. I don't think so because in theory, a lot of the ways that we have to um, balance out strength of schedule when we're ranking these teams, you know, whether it's Ken Palm or some of the other rating systems out there, you know, I don't think that there's like a bias toward, oh, we're like overcompensating for the strength of schedule and we're not really truly taking into account how Gonzaga matches up. Because uh, Also, Gonzaga, yes, they haven't won the championship uh, of, of the, you know, NCAA before, but they've been a one seed a bunch of times. They've gone to the final four. They they've gone to the national final granted they lost, but you know, it's not like they're one of these teams that always flames out early in the tournament. They have made some tournament runs. They just haven't quite been able to seal the deal. And I, I think it's just, I, I would love to see them get one. Uh, and I'm a little bit, Sad that this, I think, is one of their, if not their, uh, their very highest ranking they've ever had going into a season in the AP preseason poll. That this would be the year where that would happen. And there's so much uncertainty and there's so much that can kind of get in the way of that. And yes, they have scheduled this front loaded schedule with out of conference opponents like Kansas, like Auburn. I know Auburn little bit in a little bit of hot water with the NCAA right now. Uh, Baylor, you know, all, all of these, um, Iowa, uh, all of these teams that are kind of ranked highly all loaded up in late November and in December. And, you know, yes, it will be a stretch of a bunch of West Coast Conference uh, teams after that. that. That's kind of the way that it always works. But at the same time, they are playing at least as far as we know, barring uh, reschedulings and cancellations and stuff like that, they are playing top teams early on and they usually do that. Um, So I I think it's fair to think of them almost as like transcending their, their conference. Um, And I'm not sure that it matters as much anymore now uh, as it would have in an earlier era. Right. I, I do. I've it's, I do wonder though, if the level of play in their conference going into the tournament doesn't hurt them in rankings, but hurts them in their actual play. Like they're that's maybe this is like all crap, but like, I've always thought like Iowa state being in the big 12, (laughs) having to face the gauntlet of teams in the tournament in the big 12 tournament, right before going into the NCAA tournament when, when, when they make it um, has helped them. Although then again, sometimes, you know, I was reminded that the um, Iowa state is the, the Iowa State men are the defending Big 12 tournament champions. They're also the, the Iowa State football team is in first place in the Big 12. Just a oh yeah a, a mm-hmm. banner, and the Iowa State women's team is in the top 15. So you know, banner year right now for my cyclists. Anyway, <laughs> but then they this they, has now become an Iowa State I podcast. Know. Let's let's just talk about the cyclists the rest of this podcast. Um, but the Iowa State men then also flamed out immediately in the, in the NCAA tournament. Um, on the women's side, South Carolina, led by the amazing Don Staley, looks pretty dominant, in large part because it has a trio of strong sophomore guards. 
Meanwhile, Baylor and Oregon are coping with the respective losses of Lauren Cox and Sabrina Ionescu, among other key assets. Neil, you wrote in the spring about the momentum that women's basketball lost because of the pandemic. What would you say is more important for building that momentum back? New stars like UNESCO emerging or prestige teams like South Carolina and UConn having really dominant seasons? It's always good for a sport when you have a team that you either love or hate and you either want to see them lose or you're rooting for them to kind of just dominate everyone. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, South Carolina can kind of pick up that mantle because it does seem like UConn is not you know, and hasn't been um, uh, in, in a little while that same dominating team, still still a great team, but not not quite the the same level that they were at when we were asking, like, are they ever going to lose ever? Uh, and, and so I think when you don't have those um, those long streaks on the line or those, you know, dominant teams to uh, to root against. Yeah, it does kind of come down to the individual stars. And Sabrina was like a great story or, uh, you know, it's a, it's still such a shame that she didn't get to play in the, in the NCAA tournament last year, because that would have been such a moment uh, to be able to break out on that national stage again and potentially win the championship. And so I think now, yeah, it's just sort of almost like getting re getting acquainted with the new crop, the, the next uh, up and coming generation. And there are a lot of players to be excited about on the teams at the top that, that will probably know a lot more about as the season goes on. Yeah, I think, you know, South Carolina and UConn both have two really bright stars, um, st stars in the making. Aaliyah Boston for South Carolina is is just a sophomore this year, but and it's just maybe the best player in the country. Um, and she's someone who I think can can be can carry that mantle for for women's basketball. A freshman at UConn, Paige Beckers, who was the number one recruit this year, is someone I think we're all really excited to see what what happens with her. Sometimes freshmen and Gino Ariyama don't mix well together, but it sounds like so far he's got good things to say about her, which which seems like um, seems like a good thing. I'm also really interested in Haley Jones of Stanford, who is you know going into her sophomore season, a former number one recruit. These are really exciting, really talented. It just seems like the talent level is so high right now in women's college basketball that just makes it really fun to watch. And I'm excited about uh, this kind of changing the guard in, in terms of coaching ranks, where we saw Muffet McGraw retire from Notre Dame. Uh, we, we saw a number of kind of high profile retirements or just, you know, people leaving uh, spots where they had been for a long time. And now you're getting kind of this influx of former WNBA players, players that we kind of you know, knew when we uh, when we were watching them as players become coaches. Like think about Carol Lawson at Duke, uh, and uh, I think that that's really cool. Like that is um, a phenomenon that's still kind of relatively new. And up until recently, you did have these kind of fixtures like Muffin McGraw that that were leading programs that stretched back. I mean, Gino is another great example where it like stretches back decades, and, and, it, and it really kind of tells the history of women's college basketball from almost it's like earliest beginnings of becoming this like high profile national sport. Uh, and, and so they're the bridge to that. But then now you, you have this new influx of former players that yeah. uh, I, I'm pretty excited to see um, in places where they have the potential to actually win. Yeah, it's good from both perspectives of, you know, the game. I think these are great 
you know, basketball minds who are going to do like really cool things at their program. I think we're all really excited to see what Carol Lawson does at Duke. I also think it's great for the marketing of the sport because you've got these like known quantities and stars and stars across the board. I mean, I think of Carol Lawson has been a, done commentary for NBA. So she's well known among not just women's basketball fans, which I think is good for this sport that is still pushing for greater traction among among new fans and fans of the game in general, but not necessarily of um, traditionally of women's basketball in particular. So I think showing that it's a high quality, fun game to watch. And then also with these personalities, um, that's just, it's just good. It's just good for the game, which is really exciting to see. Okay. Well, the season starts tomorrow, (laughs) hopefully, barring any uh, last minute um, complications. So we'll see where all of these rankings, um, how these teams pan out after they've played a few games. I think we can put a pin in this discussion for now. We'll be back in a moment for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, take it away. Thanks, Sarah. So last week, in a little bit of surprising news, Chicago Cubs president Theo Epstein announced that he was stepping down and leaving the club in the capable hands of his longtime number two, Jed Hoyer. Epstein is departing the Cubs after, of course, helping to build their 2016 championship team, which broke a 107-season title drought for the Northsiders, which was the longest in baseball history. Epstein also was the GM of the 2004 Boston Red Sox, who famously broke their own 85-season drought, which was the third longest in history. By the way, sandwiched in between those two are the 2005 Chicago White Sox at 87 years, a team literally no one ever talks about for some reason. So shout out to Kenny Williams, the architect of that team as well. But anyway, Epstein helped break a collective 192 years of droughts and curses and so forth by the time he was only 42 years old, which is not bad for any team executive. Obviously, Epstein got a lot of credit for that, deservedly so, Uh, but he also became the face for a new era of how teams are built and who gets to build them. He wasn't the first analytics GM. I think we actually talked about Sandy Alderson and Billy Bean in Oakland earlier this fall when Bean left the A's. And last week, we even noted when we were talking about Kim Ang that longtime Yankees GM Brian Cashman has been plenty analytics savvy, too, and his, his tenure at the helm of the Yankees goes back to the 90s. Uh, Epstein wasn't the first GM with an Ivy League background either, but the Red Sox under Epstein, this guy from Yale uh, who employed Bill James, the father of Sabermetrics as a consultant, they were really the first champion whose success was widely attributed to analytics and to a particular archetype of GM in the process. And when Theo went to Chicago, he kind of doubled down on that archetype. He poached Hoyer and Jason McLeod, these guys that had worked with him in the um, Red Sox front office that shared a similar background uh, from the Padres and assembled one of the largest analytics and R and D departments in all of baseball. Uh, He stated his intention to create a quote, scouting and player development machine. And he slashed the Cubs big league payroll, focusing on the draft and following the, you got to get bad to get good model of tactical rebuilding. And sure enough, Chicago lost 95.3 games per season over Epstein's first three years at the helm, but then rapidly improved in 2015, making the NLCS. And then they won the World Series in 2016 behind a great veteran pitching staff and a truly great young core of hitting talent that 
is sort of had been homegrown under the Epstein uh, regime. Now, things haven't exactly followed the same perfectly upward trajectory for the Cubs since then, but Epstein's successes did set this new template for the modern GM. And whether that was good or bad for baseball is kind of a matter of debate, maybe more now than ever. Lots of our favorite take artists that we analyze here at Hot Takedown blame the focus on analytics for slowing baseball down and making it less aesthetically enjoyable. And there's probably some truth to that, if we're being honest. Uh, Plenty of recent seasons have also devolved into tank fests as teams try to copy the Cubs' path from bottoming out to winning a title. And the lack of diversity in MLB's current Ivy League front office culture came under fire this summer, particularly since it squeezes out former players at an alarming rate. ESPN's June Lee found that in 2001, before Epstein was hired as Boston's GM, 3% of top front office jobs were held by Ivy grads compared with 37% for ex-players. Now, 43% of those jobs are held by Ivy grads and 67% by grads of elite universities in general, while only 20% are held by ex-players. Now, none of these trends are Epstein's fault per se. He's even gone on record lamenting the trend of so many front office types sharing very similar backgrounds to his own. And without the three titles Epstein won in Boston and Chicago, advanced metrics still probably would have taken over baseball front offices. So would tanking. We've seen it in basketball, independent of the influence of of baseball. And maybe even the brigade of Ivy Leaguers would have also flooded into uh, MLB front offices. It's all part of movements that are much bigger than any one person, even when that person had one of the most iconic careers of any executive in baseball history. But for good and for bad, Epstein was deeply intertwined, if not synonymous, with almost all of the larger developments in the game of baseball over the past two decades. So that's a little bit on his legacy as it stands right now. I know he's talked about having another chapter in the game. We'll have to see whether that reverses some of these trends, maybe creates new trends, or if he does something else. One other thing, though, that struck me as interesting were Epstein's surprisingly candid comments about what kind of executive he had been. He said, quote, if you look at my track record in Boston and then here, meaning Chicago, in the first six years or so, we did some pretty epic things. And then the last couple of years weren't as impressive. Maybe what that tells me is I think I'm great at and really enjoy building and transformation and triumphing. Maybe I'm not as good and not as motivated by maintenance. So, Sarah, what do you what do you think about Epstein's legacy in general? And also, I'm curious what you think about that quote. Do the things that make a good rebuilding GM, tanking GM, whatever you call it, not make for a good kind of post tank GM? Do you need separate people to do that? Or is it just more a matter of like he got bored <laughs> with after all the exciting stuff is done and, and kind of wanted to move on? Also, by the way, remember when we were talking about the Cubs as like a potential dynasty after the 2016 uh, championship. And really that was their only title. And now Theo seems to be leaving right as I don't want to say the ship is sinking, but they're definitely headed for some tough decisions with their players going forward. I don't know if that's a coincidental bit of timing either. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess that's the, that's the move, right? Like get out while (laughs) while getting good. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe they didn't, he didn't feel like the getting was good anymore with the Cubs. I find that quote really strange to me because when you're rebuilding, like you're always rebuilding, right? Like, isn't that what a GM does? Is it really only fun to get guys that you couldn't afford if you were a better team or to like stockpile stockpile draft picks? I mean, in the in MLB especially, like 
I don't know. The draft is not nearly as fun as like, you know, it's not like the Oklahoma City Thunder out here with their five bajillion <laughs> draft picks that will be all used on, you know, specific players that can really help the team. Baseball is just built differently. So I, I found that kind of strange because I guess I thought that the same principles apply when you're starting over as when you're just maintaining from year to year, because you, you have to think about this big picture and all these moving parts. And I don't really see how it's different, except it, it seems harder <laughs> when you're, when you're tanking. So maybe, maybe for him, it's just the thrill and now the thrill is gone. And so he doesn't want to, doesn't want to do it anymore. I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was weird, too, because there's a lot of like losing involved in that early phase. So it's not like you're really kind of going through like, oh, let the good times roll. Let's go through those 100, 300 lost seasons before we get to the um, NLCS. Yeah, let's have all of the fans mad at me. Like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's not the fun part. I mean, the fun part comes next, you would think. But maybe uh, one of the aspects that's not fun is... Like in a weird way, and maybe this is also symbolic of a lot of the stuff, the other stuff with Theo is like um, when you're in that re- in that rebuild, in that kind of ramping up phase, you're not really attached to any of the players that mm-hmm. come along. You know, they're kind of stopgaps to get you to the core of the championship team, you hope. Uh, and so you don't really feel any kind of emotions uh, trading them or, or letting them walk or, you know, otherwise cutting ties with them. Whereas probably Theo Epstein has a lot of like deep emotional feelings, probably about like Chris Bryant and Javi Baez. And, <laughs> Don't we all? I mean, I know I do. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so it's probably a little bit more difficult yeah. uh, once you get to the phase where you have to actually maybe move on from the this group that is really special to you and uh, you have like formed uh, emotional connections with. But I mean, that's that's a big part of being a GM, I mean, don't we always hail Bill Belichick, who is probably a counterexample to this, right? Like Belichick is kind of the ultimate maintenance GM, uh, maybe putting aside 2020, but I think 2020 is actually kind of part of it. It's like the quintessential aspect of being with an organization for the long haul is what he's going through this year. Uh, and, and Belichick is famous for not feeling emotional connections and, you know, cutting, um, gosh, who was it like to Bucky Jones or somebody like that, uh, on the, uh, or lawyer Malloy, that's who it was literally the week before the 2003 season. Yeah. Uh, and he was like a team captain, but Belichick was like, ah, oh, he's too expensive. This is for cap purposes. Bye. Uh, CEO wouldn't want to be. A, <laughs> and that's sort of the like mentality that Belichick has always kind of carried. And even with Brady, I mean, there was all of the reporting that we heard about it was like Kraft thought of Brady as like a surrogate son and wanted to get a deal done and bring him back. And Belichick was like uh, coldly Im- unemotional about it and calculating and was like, we have to move on. You know, this is for the good of the team. And maybe Theo Epstein just kind of doesn't want to go through that or become that, you know, uh, person. You know, as a fantasy baseball and football player, I feel for Epstein if that is if if he is actually and by the way I don't characteristics know. Like, we're I'm, trying to give him. Yeah. I'm certainly yeah. uh projecting. No I'm projecting from my own experience running teams in uh, Madden right. and NBA two K. I I hate trading guys because I'm like, but he's my guy. Also, I'm like always worried about if I trade a player away that he's immediately going to go off, you know. So I never I hate trades. I, I hate even being asked to trade. I just hate that. So so maybe that's so maybe I should retire as a fantasy baseball manager. I want it all. I'm just done. Um, Me and Theo. 
All right, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back at your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You could also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff on vacation, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.